Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Tuesday, April 30th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and joining me in the studio today from Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, Emily Flippin, and from Motley Fool Canada, Joey Salitro. Guys, how's it going? Doing well. Thanks for being here. On today's Consumer Goods Show, we're going to take a look at what just could be the Mercado Libre of Africa. We'll take a listener question about a Chinese electric car company, NEO. But first, we're going to take a look at the current state of affairs for Yushin, the popular used car e-commerce platform in China. Emily, I'm going to start with you here because you're really the resident expert when it comes to Yushin. Oh, no. And we had <laughs> demand on Twitter for your take on the company here recently. We wanted yeah, wanted to get an update on the company, and, and knowing that you follow it, there was a recent short report that came out that played out a little bit on the stock. But knowing that we're business-focused investors, we look past those types of things into the longer uh, the longer term there. What is the state of affairs with Yushin, and uh, how do you feel about the company today? It's really quite the interesting story for Yushin. We had this short report come out, sent the stock down, I think at its bottom was down 50% in a matter of hours after this report came out, essentially claiming that the majority of Yushin's business, which is to sell used cars, they run a used car e-commerce platform in China, was fraudulent, and that the company was essentially Double counting, making up a lot of their numbers, um, lying to investors in their annual report. So, some very egregious kind of claims there that if they were accurate would drastically change the value proposition of Yushin. And it's interesting because it came out right after an amazing quarterly report. We saw Yushin absolutely crush expectations. The stock is still kind of depressed from this short report. So, you're right. We are business focused people, but we can't take this without looking at what it means for the business. So, investors who maybe are wondering why, if they own shares of Yushin, why they're down a lot, or if they're looking at the company, why it looks so depressed, that's really the reason. I know I've looked at it. I know Joey's looked at the report. And while some things are concerning, right? You're never going to know these companies the same way that you may know a company that's based here in the US. There were a lot of kind of red flags for me in the short report coming out that kind of gave me the impression that the people who wrote it didn't really understand Yushin's business. So, red flags in the short report, not red flags for So, green for flags business, for the, the company, essentially. Gotcha. Okay. So, some stuff in there that were very clearly part of the business strategy for the company, and whoever was writing it was, was kind of unclear about the strategy that Yushin was taking. So, without getting into the granularities of it, for me, I, I still want to hold out for this company. It'll be interesting to see what happens when they start to report in the future quarters. I know that you know, 2019 is going to be an interesting year for Chinese economic development. But the numbers that we've seen come out, to the extent that they're true, are extremely promising. And it's still an extremely promising company. Well, we talk about this a lot. Joey, I'll let you chime in here, because we, we, you and I sit next to each other. We were talking about that short report when it first came out. And it, this is not the first time we've seen a short report come out from you know, an entity. And, and invariably, these entities are always holding a short position on the stock on which they're reporting. Um, but but it does, you know, it's really easy to look at a business from sort of a 50,000 foot view and say, we like the business, we like what they're doing, we like leadership, the services they're providing, the products they're selling. It's also pretty easy for anyone to go in there and start trying to pull on a string here or there to just dispute a fact or a number or something and then turn essentially what is a molehill into a mountain, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, using an example from the report would be, you know, they try to say that they count inventory twice, and there might be a different price tag on those two cars, and it's the same exact image. But if you look at it from the company standpoint, of course, it's going to be a different price for a car depending on how far it has to travel. So, you look, they serve 
300 markets directly, and I think 900 markets in total using all of their dealer partners. So, of course, if someone goes directly to that dealer, they might get one price, but if they're going directly to Yushin's website, it might be another price because they got to factor in that commission. So, I always like to take the short report with the grain of salt, like you mentioned, because they profit from that stock going down. (laughs) So, they're going to do anything they can and say, you know, even the wording that they use is like, we can't trust anything these guys say because of this, this, and this. But if you look at it from a different angle or a more positive angle, you could say, well, they just don't understand how this works. So I think I'm with Emily where I have a different understanding of the business and I am long the stock. So, of course, I kind of see through a lot of the nonsense. But if you're you know, new to this company, you might have completely written it off from ever wanting to own it just because you might believe something that this company said or it might have scared you away. And you were selling as the stock was down in the mid forties and or mid one forties. Mid forties, Yushin dreams. <laughs> well, but yeah. you think about it. I mean, if you're taking the long view on a company, which that's generally what we do here, we don't really do a whole heck of a lot of shorting. It, you know, a, it, a short report. I mean, they're really just looking for that one day. They want to make the impact as quickly as possible. For them, it can literally be a one-day investment. They're in there, they're out of there. It's obviously much less business focused. And I mean, to your point, I don't like to just dismiss these reports and saying, "Oh, they just don't know what they're talking about." I mean, it's they're no dummies. I mean, they're always things worth paying attention to. Um, but by the same token, I mean, it, it, again, I mean, you, they can pull on any kind of string there. Companies are big entities. There's a lot of things going on. Reporting errors happen. Numbers get fudged. Whatever. It doesn't necessarily mean that the entire company is a fraud or it's going down the tube. So, I mean, yeah, to y'all's point, taking those things with a grain of salt. But from what I'm gathering here, you both feel like it's still a business that's doing a lot of the right things. Definitely. I Just to use another example from the short report, they said one of the problems with the company is the fact that cars that are listed for sale on their website are also listed for sale at dealerships. <laughs> yes, that is how used car sales work. <laughs> and it's funny because you should, you know, respond and management responded, wrote out a really nice response, actually, that if investors are worried, they should take the time to read through. Um, said it in a nicer manner than I probably would have if I was Yushin's management. That was essentially like, yes, these are our business practices. This is how selling used cars works. We never claim to have exclusive rights over the cars that dealers listed on our website. So, all in all, it doesn't look great for the stock. But I like to go back to you know the quarterly report that they just released, the fundamentals of the business, management. All these things are still looking promising. So, it's definitely, you have to take a long view. Well, that's encouraging. We'll continue to follow it. And I'm sure that we will be inviting you both back in the studio again very soon to talk about this company again. Hopefully for better news. <laughs> yes, for better news. Well, let's take a step over to Africa. And I tell you, Joey, we were talking about this a few days ago. And you had me at Mercado Libre because when you were talking about Jumia uh, Technologies and this essentially being like the Mercado Libre slash Amazon slash insert tech name. Uh, of 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 Africa. I mean, th- this seems like a pretty compelling business from a market opportunity standpoint. I mean, we've seen obviously what Amazon has done to date. We've seen how Mercado Libre capitalized that on its own particular geography there in Latin America. Looking at Africa, understanding that they're still a little bit behind in many ways, and they are coming into the 21st century in a number of ways, it sounds like Jumia is trying to capitalize on that by building out um, ultimately an e-commerce-style platform for what looks like the ultimately the entire continent, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, a lot of people like to attach Amazon or Alibaba to the company. You know, the blank of Africa. <laughs> so. 
here at the Molly Fool, we're all familiar with Mercado Libre. Yep. And I think that that best sums up kind of what they do, where they have these three business divisions where they split up between marketplace, payments, and logistics. But when you dig deeper, it's much more than just that platform that's connecting sellers with buyers. They've got the travel division that looks very much like a Priceline or an Expedia. They've got the foods division that looks very much like a Grubhub or Instacart. And they've got this deals division, which is a mix of real estate, cars, jobs, and classifieds, which reminds me of kind of like a combination of Zillow, Cars.com, Indeed, and Craigslist. So you see that they're basically leveraging every popular form that people use to purchase things on the internet and kind of bundle it all into one, where each of these business divisions actually had different names. I think the travel was Jovago and uh, Carmoto, I believe, was the, the car division. So they just kind of rebrand these as Jumia Deals or Jumia Travel. And they just kind of bundled it all into this one company where the most interesting part is that it's Africa and the second fastest growing uh, behind East Asia, second fastest yeah. growing economy behind East Asia. You've got 1.2 billion people and the population is supposed to double to 2.5 billion by 2050. So you've pretty much got this ultimate platform of growth and they've got that first mover advantage in all of these industries. Yeah, I mean, we talk about Mercado Libre, and early on, one of the really kind of the crux of that thesis early on was not only the size of the Latin American population and the market they were serving, but the emergence of this middle class. That I mean, I think we're very used to seeing that middle class day in and day out here in the states. I mean, that's kind of just normal everyday life for us. But when you look at some of these other places where the middle class is really just starting to develop, Latin America was certainly one of those, and Mercado Libre is capitalizing on that. It sounds like you know Africa is probably a little bit behind that, but beyond even just the population expanding uh, and, and technology spreading. I mean, this is going to be at some point a middle class that jumps up out of nowhere and, and could serve as a really nice catalyst for this business. And they actually put that in their S1 filing, which is very interesting. So, yes, they have this population just explode. The median age right now is 19.4. So wow. you're talking millennial consumers or Gen Z consumers. Africa is just going to be the ultimate go-to. And you look, I think it's by 2032, they list 1.1 billion people of working age. Hmm. So actively in the labor in the labor market. So. Yeah, when you talk about how you still need to educate a lot of consumers on how to use e-commerce and you know ordering online, getting them set up with the payments platform to be able to pay with credit cards, since it's still a lot of you know cash transactions over there, there will be a lot of education and the learning curve in Africa. But I feel like they're on the right path and partnering with the right companies such as Mastercard to actually help you know, expedite this growth. Well, as a shareholder of MasterCard, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> uh, okay, this, I mean, this is a relatively new IPO. It looks like it just IPO'd earlier this year. And in typically with new IPOs, we recommend taking you know a, a patient view, letting them report a couple of quarters, get an idea of, of how management is viewing the business, how they how they run the business, how they communicate with shareholders. Um, but by the same token, I mean, when you see opportunities like this, you know. It can always be worth maybe a little nibble. I mean, I always look at these businesses and say, if if this business that I'm looking at checks all the boxes, and the only thing I'm really hesitant on is the price, normally I'll go ahead and take a small position just to get a little skin in the game and start following the business. And I, I, I recently did that with Eventbrite, as a matter of fact, another company you and I like. Um, now, Jumia, I, I could see that being the case as well. There are a lot of risks involved here. Um, talk about a couple of them for us. 
Yeah, so when it comes to risk, I mean, this company is losing a lot of money right now. So they're going to have to spend to grow. But when I look at it, I always like to weigh the opportunities against the risks. So it comes public, you know, around $2 billion. I think it's sitting at $3.6 billion valuation today. And yes, that's very pricey for the $150 million US dollars that they're doing in sales. But I always like to take a step back and see the size of the market today, kind of where the market's going in the future, and saying, you know, that $3 billion market cap today isn't all that much for what this company could be in the future. And had you done the same with a Mercado Libre or an Amazon in the early days, like we did here at the Molly Fool, you can kind of see very, you can see these similarities amongst these companies. Sure. So that's where I know I'm, I'm kind of like an IPO junkie where I buy a lot of day one and I, I, I get a lot of crap for it. But with certain companies, you know, I just, I want my skin in the game on day one. And I think with Jumia, I came in with 75% of the initial position that I wanted to, so I could, you know, add to that position if, you know, it, it starts off with that mid-morning pop and then just kind of comes back down over the next couple of days. But, you know, it's just kind of taken off like a rocket ship. So, you know, another thing I think about too is in having followed Amazon and Mercado, Mercado Libre, and, and perhaps either one of you, I don't know if you've seen this, but I have not seen really mention of Africa, that market, in any of these companies' earnings calls or presentations. I mean, I, I, I can't recall off the top of my head any businesses out there that are really focusing in on this particular market. Do you? No, and it's not to say that Africa isn't going to be a potential huge market. Um, but it is to say that that market, there's a reason why they're not in that market right now. Right. Right. There's a reason why they haven't spent the money to invest in that market. It's because it's an extremely challenging market to penetrate. You're not just talking about geopolitical turmoil, right? And we see that all over with South, South America. Um, people are still investing there. What you see is just the fact that the infrastructure that is needed for a lot of these companies has not been invested in. And yeah. unfortunately, a lot of that infrastructure requires governments to spend the money to invest. And that's not to say that it won't get there. And I think there's value in getting in early, especially if you have a long-term time horizon, because you don't really care. You don't care what's going to happen one year, two year. Over the long term, you know that a large e-commerce dealer in Africa is going to be bigger than $3 billion, for instance. Uh, but it is to say that there is extreme concern over how long that development is going to take and the money that is going to be needed to build it out. So my concern with a company like Jumia is just the fact, like Joey mentioned, it's unprofitable. And they're going to need to continue to sustain themselves, whether that be through capital raises or shareholder dilution, until they're able to scale to the point where they're profitable. So I've been burned in emerging markets before. <laughs> I imagine it will not be my last time I am burned in an emerging market. But for this one, I think there's value in maybe just waiting a little bit. Well, I mean, there's no question. It. I mean, for as compelling as the story is, I always make sure to remind myself not to fall in love with the story and look at the underlying business and the fundamentals. But I, I have to admit, I mean, I, I don't mind buying a stock and hanging on to it for 10 years. I can click ignore and just get on with life. I mean, this is one where, I mean, I, a lot of people that, Thought Mercado Libre would never yeah. be a three billion dollar business, and, and look where it is today. Mercado Libre is a great example of a company that I probably would have said the same thing about if you had asked me when they first, you know, went public, oh, and I sure. would have been burned on well, it. There were some people here that said it, yeah. And, you know, consequently they they didn't invest. Uh, but but you know, hey, maybe maybe Jumia is is that story all over again. Definitely one we'll keep an eye on. And and Joey, we'll be having you back in here periodically to keep us up to date with the company. Um, okay, let's wrap everything up here. We have a question on Twitter from Kurt Adams. And Kurt, 
he tweeted some really kind words the other day about our shows and the podcast and how we're helping him out. So, Kurt, we wanted to return the favor for you and make sure to get this question in the spotlight for you. Kurt asks, um, I heard you'll be hosting next week's Industry Focus. Could you please also comment or update on NEO? I own some shares and was wondering if this is a value trap or a value investment. Thank you. Kurt, you're in luck, buddy, because we have two people in this room, not including me, who know this company pretty well. And Emily, I'm going to start with you. Now, NEO is the Chinese electric car company, correct? It is correct. Okay. A lot of people call it the Tesla of China. Okay. Well, I you know, and I did a little research on this company to get it to get educated on it and understand where they stand. And that really was the first question that came to mind was this does seem like a Tesla for China. Why wouldn't I just invest in Tesla? But let's 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 go back. <laughs> Not go a down bit, that rabbit right? hole. <laughs> let's just go back a little bit first and foremost, and let's let's get your take on the company um, and see if we can't help uh, see if we can't help Kurt out here. Yes. So Neo is recent IPO. It's a large kind of premium electric vehicle maker in China. They're known for taking a different approach to the way that they produce and sell electric cars versus a company like Tesla. Tesla obviously recharges their batteries. Neo replaces their batteries. Oh wow. Okay. Yes. So um, they don't have the same distance. You don't really need the same distance, at least for their their kind of premium target market. But it's actually cheaper for them just to to replace your battery than it is for them to kind of build the infrastructure and, and make charging ports reliable, whether or not that changes in the future, you know, to be seen. Personally, for me, and I know Joey, after having many conversations with Joey about not just Neo, but Chinese stocks in general, has a very different opinion. So it's almost unfortunate I'm talking first. I tend to be a little bit nervous. And this is coming from the girl who likes the Chinese used car dealer that's much smaller, also unprofitable. But Electric cars in general, it's kind of a soft market right now in yeah. China. And they've they've guided, at least over the next couple quarters, that sales are not going to be what they want them to be. That's not to say that long term it won't be there, but I know how much these cars cost. We talk about an emerging middle class. When I think about the middle class in China, I think that something like a used vehicle, having just had the ability to purchase, by the way, regulations limited or lifted, so they have the ability to purchase used cars. That's going to be probably over the next, in my mind, five to ten years, the bigger market as opposed to electric vehicles. However, grain of salt this. Obviously, electric vehicles are something that's important to the government, right? It's it's efficient, economical, um, and NEO is kind of a big name for China, so I imagine there's a lot of, of money invested in the performance of that company. Personally, they're just horribly unprofitable, and I don't see a lot of demand. So, I, I, I kind of stay away from it. Well, I did notice in the most recent call that the the current quarter, and it looks like perhaps next quarter, sales are going to decelerate a little bit. I mean, that's understandable. They're cars, right? You're not going out and just buying a new car every, every year, every quarter. Um, but by the same token, I mean this is really purely a China play, right, Joey? I mean, this is just a, they're selling their cars only in China, right? Yeah, and so with Yushin and with Neo, which I own both, so it's kind of like a play on both sides of the market. You've got Yushin, where it's the used car; it could be the lower income families or the middle class that just want to get a car in their household. Neo is more like that premium, luxury but affordable in comparison to Tesla. So I've kind of got exposure to the premium autos and the used autos, because again, I'm the type of investor where I take a step back and I think where this market will be in you know 10 to 25 years. And the Chinese auto market is still one of the most attractive in the world, because owning a car in the United States 
is almost like a second thought. Everybody has one. Mm-hmm. But in China, that it's not there yet. So I see it as autos in general are great investments in China. But then when I pick and choose, I like Yushin because it's kind of got this e-commerce platform. And with Neo, they've got this phenomenal product that is just as good, if not better, than Tesla at a better price point. Plus, you have that added, it's made in China. Kind of like we love made in America. They must like made in China. I'm not going to make assumptions. But I would assume that, you know, having that local brand that's actually manufactured right there and there in their home country would be more attractive to them. Yeah. Now, this is a new IPO, it's worth mentioning. So, it's really still pretty new to the public markets. I did see this. So, founder and CEO Ben Lee, uh, or Ben Lee, I'm sorry, he owns 14% of the company, it looks like. And I also noticed there are three share classes. And so, ultimately, shareholders like us would just be along for the ride. You're getting that that American depository receipt, which would represent an A share that gives you like one vote, but the B shares get four votes, the C shares get eight. You know, and it's not the first company to to do that, right? We have plenty of multi-class share structures out there. But is is Ben Lee, I mean, is that like the Elon Musk of China? Is he that um is he that impressive in in perhaps sometimes a little bit <laughs> over the top or is he more of a Keep quiet, stay under the radar, and let your product do the talking. I think Richard Leo probably has that that you know kind of impression now more than Ben Lee does. Um, I, I wouldn't say that he is Elon Musk esque, and I'd actually probably still say that Tesla has arguably the better kind of brand name reputation, just because it is a foreign brand. The same way you know, it's, and it's kind of pricey, right? So the same way Starbucks has that nice premium coffee brand in China, Tesla has a nice premium electric car brand in China. And I'm not sure how long that's going to be there. I mean, Neo is really kind of making them run for their money, but I don't think I would call him Elon Musk. No. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's almost a good thing because, I mean. This might be the first time a lot of people are hearing the CEO's name. Right. Elon Musk is almost a household name, and lately, not for good reasons. No. And you see a lot of negative things about JD.com CEO. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for him to basically just be going to work every day, and he hasn't given me a reason to not want him to have control of the company. So, until that day comes, it's not really cause for concern for me. But, I mean, that's just my two cents when it comes to CEOs. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Kurt, we hope that was helpful. Emily, Joey, thanks so much for uh, stopping by. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Okay. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Emily Flippin and Joey Salitro, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.